Hi, Ron here, one of the pastors at City Chapel. We are making our way through Luke. And on Sundays, you can join us. Uh, on Zoom, you can find the link on our website, citychapel.org. Uh, and uh, we're just making our way through Luke there. And then we're doing a deeper dive here on this podcast. And so today we're on Luke 9, but I'm going to be doing just the first 50 verses. Uh, because Luke 9.51 is a pretty big transitional verse for Luke. So I'm going to save that for uh, for the next podcast. Um, as always, uh, I'm going to assume that you have either read this chapter already or you have it out in front of you. Uh, but it's best if you've read it uh, before listening to this because it'll, it'll all make more sense. Uh, so if you have not read it, or if you need to go grab it to have it out in front of you, uh, I'll let you do that right now. Okay, hoping you actually did one or both of those. Uh, but here we are, let's, let's dive in to Luke 9. I'm uh, quickly just bring scrolling back to the beginning myself all right Luke 9 uh, this starts off with the um, sending out of the 12 disciples um, and you can kind of say that this is the first time they truly become apostles apostle meaning sent one uh, and and um, in this in this mission uh, th this this one that just takes up the first six verses it, uh, the, their mission is threefold and holistic. Um, the three parts are that they are going to fight against the spiritual forces, um, exercising demons, bringing spiritual healing in that way. They're going to bring physical healing, caring for the physical needs of those that they come in contact with, and no discrimination on, on who they care for. And then they're going to bring spiritual healing by the preaching of the gospel, uh, in this case by... Um, proclaiming that uh, the kingdom of God has come near. Um, they go without the trappings of security. There's no just-in-case uh, about this, this mission. They are wholly and truly dependent upon God. Not everyone is called to this. There's only 12 at this point. In the little, in, um, next chapter, there's, there's 72 um, but uh, this still is a calling as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, there are times where we will be called to truly be wholly dependent upon God. Um, and especially for the leaders of the church, I think of James 3.1, where James says, Not many of you should become teachers, um, my brothers and sisters, for you know that those of us who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So there is... Um, there is like a uniqueness here, but also as a follower of Christ, uh, we are called to be dependent upon God. And it just begs the question, how many sermons, how many ministries, how many of, of our Christian lives are contradicted by those just-in cases, by, by our church budget, our ministry budget, by self-protection and security that, that we built in? How much of those things that we do actually just contradict uh, what, what we say, how much of our witness is contradicted by our obvious lack uh, of our faith in God. 
Um, then after that, after they return, uh, verses 7, 8, and 9, we get a glimpse of Herod. Uh, if you've been following along this podcast, you'll know that we're um, reading Fred Craddock's commentary on Luke uh, in partner with this, and uh, he goes into um, good good explanation on which Herod this is because you he- four different Herods make their appearances in Luke and Acts and throughout the Gospels, so it's just good to know a little bit of which Herod we're talking about, and it puts just some really good context to what's going on, what happened the chapter before, right now, and, and what will be coming. So I'm, I'm going to read this section of, of Craddock's commentary on, on which Herod this is and what's going on. Um, it's a little bit longer of a, of a quote that I'll read, um, but, it, but as I said, it's, it's really helpful, so just bear with me for, for being a little bit longer. So this is Fred Craddock here. He says, since four Herods make appearances in Luke Acts, perhaps we should take a moment to get the right Herod before us. This is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great and Tetrarch uh, of Galilee, and the Herod most often mentioned in the Gospels because the ministries of John and Jesus occurred during his rule. Antipas, Antipas, I don't actually know how you pronounce that one word. Herod's capital was Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, so that's why sometimes you hear the Sea of Galilee referenced maybe as the Sea of Tiberias. Um, So it was inevitable that reports about Jesus would reach him. Luke simply says Herod, quote, heard of all that was done, verse 7. Whether that knowledge was sought by him or came along natural channels of news and rumors is unclear. Neither is it clear whether the sending out of the twelve gave the ministry of Jesus the appearance of a movement and hence to be watched. What is clear is that Jesus was attracting large crowds and that crowds interest political authorities. That which perplexes Herod is that he gets three different reports about the identity of Jesus. These reports reflect public opinions about Jesus. Opinions repeated in verses 18 through 22 where we'll examine what they meant and who Jesus was in the eyes of his contemporaries in Galilee. That some thought Jesus to be a resurrected John implies several things. That John was popular, many could not believe him dead, a common phenomenon among devotees of heroes and heroines. That the circumstances of John's death were sufficiently uncertain and disturbing to fuel a belief in his resurrection. And that the ministries of John and Jesus were similar enough to prompt some to observe Jesus and think, is this John again? Uh, Reports that Jesus was Elijah returned as one of the prophets of old um, were associated with views of the Messianic age and the day of the Lord. An astute politician would know that such stories were not merely religious talk of negligible importance. Among the people already restless under foreign rule and heavy taxes, stories that joined Jesus to ancient prophecies about God's future for Israel could become socially and politically inflammatory. Herod was more than casually interested. After all, he had already killed John, a fact to which Luke makes only this one reference. To see more, uh, check out Mark 6, verses 17 through 29. Herod's curiosity will darken to a desire to kill Jesus himself in just a few chapters. Um that will become satisfied with cooperation with Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem uh, at the end of the gospel. In the closing sentence, and he sought to see him, verse 9 of this chapter, alerts the reader to anticipate the reappearance of Herod later. Um, And I want to just say now uh, that we should 
two very important notes we should take away from just these few verses. First, that the this is a clear prophecy of Jesus' death, uh, not just the anger of religious leaders. Um, and the second is that Herod asked the question that forms the, substan- the substantive center um, of this entire section. Um, the, the, the first one that this is a clear prophecy of Jesus' death that the ministry of Jesus has now reached a center of political power and disturbed a man who has already killed one prophet. And that second, the question Herod asks, uh, is what this whole section centers around. Who is this person that I'm hearing such things? This question was asked earlier by the disciples around the storm. Who is this that can even calm the storms? And now this question is uh, being spoken by someone who has very different reasons for finding out uh, about it. But Jesus will then, later in this chapter, turn this question on his disciples and ask what the people are saying, who is this person? And then he asks them, who do you say? But this this question by Herod is, is a question that everyone around him is asking. And Luke, through this way, is pushing it to us as the readers. What is your answer to this question? Who is this about Jesus? Next section is uh, one of the miracles of Jesus feeding the multitudes, uh, verses 10 through 17. Um, You can see other ones of this miracle in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and John 6. It's um, one of the few stories that's in all four Gospels. And it's not really hard to to tell why it's so crucial and central to uh, not only knowing uh, about what Jesus is about but also just the life of the church the the church Um, at the start of this story it says um, he took and withdrew to a town called Bethsaida Um, and then the disciples say send them away for we are here in a desolate place and um that desolate place is is literally a wilderness place they're saying we're in the wilderness send them away Uh, and then we know that jesus feeds them miraculously so it has very strong echoes of israel getting fed in the wilderness during moses's day um, this shows Jesus' compassion, and especially that of the poor and the hungry. The disciples can tell that these people are both those things, poor and hungry. Um, and Jesus has compassion on them, doesn't just leave them uh, to fend on their own. And then it, it gives a model for the church and what the church is to be about, of Jesus working through his disciples. Um it also foreshadows uh, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, Jesus breaking bread, sharing that bread, etc. In this feeding, there are there are two different miracles where Jesus feeds the multitudes, the thousands. Um, this one is uh, the five thousand, um, but then the next one is four thousand. But both of those numbers are just referring to the adult men that were there. So you can uh, imagine the number was at least twice that when you count women and children, uh, if not more than twice that number. Uh, So it truly is a massive scale miracle happening of of feeding. And and this one 
happens in Bethsaida, Luke lets us know, which Bethsaida is the hometown of the disciples Peter, Andrew, and Philip. Um, Jesus and the disciples, they came here hoping to get a, get some rest, uh, escaping the constants, the constant ministry that they've been doing and, and find some R&R. But as per usual, the crowds hear of Jesus being there, and so they interrupt the plans of the disciples and Jesus. I put I would put interrupt in quotes, um, or at least that's what the disciples think. Hence why they say, can we send them away? They need to get food. This is the wilderness. But what, but what do the disciples and thus us learn from this? Uh, they learn that people with needs are not an interruption. Think of just a few chapters ago of the woman who was bleeding for 12 years. Jesus was on his way to save someone from dying. That's, that's about as important of a job as you, or of a mission you could be on. And the woman interrupts Jesus on his way. Yet, to Jesus, she, her needs were not an interruption. Because he knows that people with needs are not that. They are people who deserve our love and attention. And if we were more willing to be interrupted by others... We might be able to minister to people's needs more ourselves. So just that one question from this I have for you uh, in regards to the interruption bit is, are you willing to be interrupted? Even when you think you're doing something good, even when you're doing something godly, are you willing to be interrupted for the needs of others? What I love about these feeding of the multitude stories um, just just a few other things um, that it's that yes it's Jesus the one who does the miracle but he he the miracle happens through the disciples they're the ones who distribute the food um, and it multiplies from their uh, distributing um, that's that's a clear image of what the church is supposed to be. We understand that that all of our power, authority, any of the goodness we do comes from Jesus, but Jesus chooses to use us um, to, dis- to distribute his love uh, to the world. And it's just if we are willing to, one, be interrupted, to know what Jesus is, is up to, uh, and what Jesus is up to is caring for the, the needs of the poor and hungry, at, at least uh it's pretty obvious here um, and uh, if we're willing to um, see our resources through God's eyes um, how do we assess our resources today do we look at them with eyes like Jesus seeing um, you know a few loaves and a few fish and knowing that that's enough to feed the thousands or do we have eyes like the disciples in this story and uh, when we count our, our money, when we count our people, when we count our resources, whose, whose eyes are we looking at, at them with? Like Jesus or, or like the disciples in the story? <clears throat> After this, uh, this passage, <clears throat> then it's um, Peter confessing uh, who Jesus is as the Christ of God. Um, and again, it's that same question that Herod asked 
and the disciples asked earlier in the storm, who is this man? But Jesus turns around the disciples and says, who do the people say I am? And what we find is that the people thought that Jesus was the person and had the role that we give to John. They thought he was actually the one or one of the ones who was announcing the coming Messiah. <clears throat> Partly because if we believe that the, the Messiah is still coming, he can be shaped to be and to do what, what we want. But if the Messiah has already come, then we cannot make him into, what, into who we want. He is who he is. And then the, Jesus asked the disciples, but who do you say I am? And we get Peter's response. Um, Peter answered, the Christ of God, uh, the end of verse 20. Peter through Luke reminds us that the story has and always will be about God from creation and Adam all the way to the end times. It's about God, who God is, and God's actions. The Christ of of God, putting Jesus in uh, the the one that they know has been there for all times, and then after after this confession, we get the um, take up your cross and follow Jesus. The cost of discipleship section, verses twenty three through twenty seven, and this this call to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Jesus. It would have been so utterly confusing to the disciples hearing it then. There's no hint of Jesus being killed, let alone crucified. Jesus said that he was going to be handed over and taken, but they would not have known that it would have been uh, by a cross. It would have been completely confusing to them. Which lets us know that Luke is actually, his audience is actually us, the readers. We are the ones reading the story with hindsight, knowing the end as we read through it. Know, we know what Jesus is going to go through. We know that he will uh, die on a cross and um, raise from the dead. This is a call for us. Luke also is the only one who adds the, the daily bit. Um, but just a bit on, on what are crosses to bear um, sh by putting it daily it shifts it shifts it from from sacrificial living away from just martyrdom um, uh, and this 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 life that has taken up your cross daily it's it's one that is voluntarily chosen so things like uh, things that are not voluntarily taken up are not these crosses we have to bear. Whether it's uh, some examples Craddock gives is like arthritis, poor grades, uh, a, a child on drugs. These these do even though these are things that we say oh, it's my cross I have to bear. They're not. They're they are truly difficulties and they are truly um, things that hurt us and require love and attention and care from those around us but they're not necessarily the that voluntarily taken up cross to bear um a, a cross bearing life 
that daily taking up your cross would have to involve a denial of self in the service of God. Um, it's, it's following Jesus in the service of God, which translates into meeting human needs um, by denying yourself. There is a, a humbling of oneself um, in this in this uh, daily taking up of our cross. And then just a quick little bit on the saving your life by losing it. Uh, it's not, uh, as Craddock says, a strategy for successful living, but it is a condition of discipleship. Whoever loses their life for my sake, Jesus says, um, or to seek to gain the whole world as a power move or out of fear of insecurity is a flat contradiction to the life whose power is given by God's spirit and sent in the world without all those just in cases uh, like the first six verses of this chapter. After this, we get to the um, transfiguration of Jesus, verses 28 through 36. This is one of the five big milestones, uh, moments in Jesus' um, adult ministry life. First one is his baptism, then there's this, the transfiguration, then crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Um, and the transfiguration is, it's such a unique situation that it's, it's honestly not one where we should attempt to draw some sort of parallel to our own lives because quite honestly there isn't one. It's, it's not appropriate in this situation. It's best to just let it remain what it is in all its extraordinariness. Um, in it, we, we see Moses and Elijah showing up. Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets. And then Jesus, all of them on a mountaintop, which is a place uh, where heaven and earth meet, where the human and divine connect. And we see Jesus as the bridge between heaven and earth, as well as the place where the law and the prophets come together, fulfilled, perfectly lived out, perfectly embodied in Jesus. Um, and just like at his baptism, we hear the, the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Here in this moment, we see fully who Jesus is, and we are told to listen to him, akuo, in the Greek. Uh, that's a hearing and an understanding that is that spurs one into doing. A hearing that brings about faith. Listen, akuo, to him. Hear him in a way that, that you're spurred to do. Hear him in a way that brings about faith. And then after the transfiguration, this is the last bit uh, before we get to verse 51. So I'm uh, focusing at verses 37 through 50. Um, these are four quick stories, uh, vignettes, as Craddock calls them, four vignettes showing us about uh, showing us the disciples as not quite ready disciples. They're not quite ready to be sent off on their own yet. Remember at the start of this chapter when the, the 12 are sent out, they're sent with all authority over demons, able to do miracles, healing, uh, 
having a faith that's fully dependent on God for all things, and God comes through. But then uh, you, Jesus predicts his death. Um, there's, you know, there's something, some other things go on. We don't quite know what it all is, um, but they're not quite uh, the hot shots that they were not too long ago. Um, and in these four vignettes, we see uh, four, the, the, the four ways that they still have, have growth to do. Um, at this point, Craddock says, apart from Jesus, they are still just fishermen. Um, and, and it's crucial, I would say, in fact, I, I, I would recommend um, to reread this section, but as you do reread it, um, it's crucial when we read this section that we fully identify with the disciples. When, when we read verses 37 through 50, we need to fully identify with the disciples. Uh, usually we like to put ourselves in the position of Jesus as the one correcting, encouraging, uh, uh, rebuking, and, and so on and so forth, and especially in this situation. But we need to remember that we are in the place of the disciples. And apart from Jesus, all of our own flaws are way too apparent. We're all in need of grace. Even the leaders of the church as the disciples uh, come to be. And these four, these four um, vignettes are, um, they're lacking in power. That's the first bit we see. They, they had all power and authority, but now they're lacking again. Then they're lacking in understanding. Then we see that they're still lacking in humility. And then we see the last bit, they're lacking in, in sympathy. These are the four areas they need to still grow. Uh, Lacking in power, verses 37 through the first half of 43. Lacking in understanding, last bit of 43 through 45. Lacking in humility, 46 through 48. And then lacking in sympathy, 49 through 50. Um, I'm going to actually just go ahead and read these again. Um, and I'll say the vignette. What, like what it what it means before. So the first one, we see the disciples are still needing to grow um, because they're lacking in power, 37 through the first bit of 43. So that's on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met, met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son. He's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So that bit, the disciples are still lacking in power. Needing to grow in that. And then this next part, they're lacking in understanding. Uh, 43 through 45. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. 
And the next is that they are lacking and need to grow in humility, 46 through 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And the last bit that they're still lacking and need to grow in sympathy. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And with that last thing, this is the last note I, I want to leave us with. And that's that we need to be careful how we label and exclude people. See, so he was already creeping in with the disciples, even with Jesus around. And Jesus, here in that last bit, he puts a kibosh on it. He stops it. Where would Jesus put, uh, put the kibosh on our own exclusionary tactics and reasonings? Where do we need to remind, remember and view ourselves as just the disciples needing the correction from Jesus, needing the encouragement from Jesus, needing to grow? That's all I got for us this time. Thanks for listening. See you next time.